Well, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. First of all, let me apologize for running a little bit late. It seems there's a uh, pretty sizable protest going on in this area and uh, slowed the calves down quite a bit. Uh, in any event, just a couple of quick housekeeping, housekeeping notes before we get started. First of all, the, uh, the Cato Handbook on Policy. Hopefully you guys are already familiar with this. This is a publication we put out uh, every four years now, which uh, kind of gives you a good overview from a libertarian perspective, an overview of pretty much every policy issue that would be dealt with here in Congress, ranging from topics like, uh, like today's subject, uh, health care, to civil liberties, foreign policy, Social Security, you name it, it's in the Cato Handbook on Policy. We're actually unveiling a brand new Cato Handbook for policymakers uh, in just a couple weeks on February 3rd, so uh, keep your eyes peeled for more information about that. Uh, today, again, we're going to be talking about, uh, about health care, and uh, our speaker is, uh, is Michael Cannon. He is our director of health policy studies. Uh, prior to joining Cato, he actually worked here on Capitol Hill for the uh, Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he was, uh, uh, handled a number of, of domestic issues. Certainly, health care was one of his primary areas of focus. Uh, he's been published in a number of, uh, of newspapers, uh, USA Today, LA Times, New York Post, you name it. Um, he holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia, and he has master's degrees in economics and in law and economics from George Mason University. He is also the co-author of this book, Healthy Competition, which is actually a, a really excellent uh, look at uh, look at healthcare, of course, from a free market perspective. Actually, I think it's by far the best healthcare book that I've ever read, and I highly recommend it to you. If you guys are interested in uh, in checking it out, just let me know after the. Uh, after the event today, and we can get you a copy. With that, I'll turn things over to Michael Cannon. Good afternoon, and thank you, Brandon. Um, Brandon and I got uh, a, a little delayed on the way over here. Brandon suggested that the reason was there were protests out on uh, the streets of Washington, D.C. today, and that slowed our cab down. Actually, I think the reason is uh, the D.C. Cab Commission. The reason is government, and it's the same reason why you don't want the federal government controlling your health care. And if anyone has uh, wants to see how I make the connection, I'll be happy to do that later during the question and answer period. We're, uh, we're just two days now into uh, a new administration, and I'm pleased to report that I am still on a high over America's first African-American president. Um, and I, I expect that high will last. Our new uh, President Barack Obama has indicated that health care reform is going to be one of his top priorities. And certainly the need for reform is great. The cost of health care and health insurance is growing faster than wages are growing. The Congressional, the Congressional Budget Office reports that government health care programs will cause the federal budget to double as a share of GDP by the end of this century. And uh, uh, that's from 20 per, about 20 percent today to 40 percent by the end of the century. And making matters worse, we're not even getting our money's worth for all that we're spending on health care. The CBO also estimates that about $700 billion dollars some 5% of U.S. GDP is wasted every year on medical care that makes patients no healthier and makes them no happier either. At the same time, millions of Americans lack health insurance for no good reason, and the Institute of Medicine estimates that the lack of health insurance leads to 18,000 unnecessary deaths every year. As well, and the Institute of Medicine also estimates that uh, 
medical errors lead to 50 to 100,000 deaths per year, so that the quality of care is also not what it should be. Now, it's too soon to know what Congress and President Obama are, are going to do with regard to health care reform. It's too soon to know when they're going to take it up, and it's too soon to know exactly what their health care uh, reform proposals are going to look like. But given the similarities between the reforms proposed by the Obama campaign, the reforms that are laid out in a white paper that was issued by Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus, the reforms that uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Daschle writes about in his new book, and the reforms written into legislation by Senator Ron Wyden, we can make a pretty good guess about what health care reform is going to look like uh, in this Congress. And we can also conclude that if Mr. Obama and congressional Democrats adhere to the basic principles of those reform proposals, America would be better off with no health care reform at all. I say that not because Mr. Obama's plan would uh, force millions of Americans to give up their current health coverage, though it would. I say that not because forcing people to change their health coverage inevitably threatens their ability to see uh, their current doctors, though it does. The real problem with the leading Democratic reform proposals is that they would give us more of the same. If Congress creates a new government health insurance program for those under age 65 modeled on Medicare, if Congress mandates that uh, people purchase uh, a government-defined health insurance plan, if government imposes price controls on health insurance premiums, and if Congress creates new government bureaucracies to implement these and other activities, then America's health care sector will continue to cost too much and produce too little. So let's examine each of those proposals in turn. Now, Mr. Obama and Mr. Baucus proposed to create a new government health insurance program for those under age 65. It would be modeled on the Medicare program, which currently serves Americans over age 65, and it would compete with private insurance companies and may the best plan win. Now, who could be against that? The idea of open and fair competition is as American as apple pie. But the notion that there would be fair competition between a government health plan and private health insurance companies is nonsense. Not only would one of those competitors make and enforce the rules that all competitors uh, must abide by, but that competitor would have the unique ability to subsidize itself and its own activities in a way that other competitors cannot. Competition between a public plan and private insurers, I like to say, would be about as fair as playing in an NBA final where the ref has money riding on the other team. The clearest evidence that supporters of a public plan do not want fair competition is Mr. Obama's recent suggestion to eliminate the Medicare Advantage program. Mr. Obama did not propose leveling the playing field between traditional Medicare and the private Medicare plans that serve 10 million seniors. He proposed eliminating those private plans entirely, ousting 10 million seniors from the health plans that they chose. Moreover, Medicare is an unwise model for health care reform because it is the leading force pushing costs downward and quality upward. I'm sorry, I had that backwards. The leading force pushing costs upward and quality downward. Medicare has a change-resistant payment system that actually rewards waste and error while punishing quality. For example, researchers at Dartmouth Medical School estimate that Medicare wastes one-third of its budget, some $150 billion each year, on medical care that doesn't make seniors any healthier or happier, medical care that provides no discernible value. Now, diverting those resources, which are roughly equal to the economic output of South Carolina, from more, diverting those resources for more productive uses, such as expanding coverage, costs lives. And when doctors, hospitals, and private insurers actually try to improve quality through electronic medical records, other health information technologies, by coordinating care, uh, keeping patients healthy, keeping them out of the hospital, 
reducing medical errors, Medicare's change-resistant payment system actually punishes them for doing so. That discourages innovation and costs lives. Creating a new government health insurance program would subject even more of America's healthcare sector to those perverse incentives and block innovations that make medicine better, cheaper, and safer. Now, two other reforms common to all of the leading Democratic uh, health care reform proposals are mandates requiring that Americans purchase health insurance and federal price controls that would increase premiums on, for healthy people with the hope of reducing premiums for the sick. Now, much is made about the difference between an employer mandate and an individual mandate. Mr. Obama has endorsed an employer mandate, and uh, uh, he's criticized an individual mandate, but an individual mandate has been endorsed by Mr. Baucus, Mr. Dashville, Mr. Wyden, and others. In the presidential primaries, Mr. Obama essentially criticized Senator Hillary Clinton's individual mandate as a tax on the uninsured. But, of course, the same can be said of Mr. Obama's employer mandate. And, in fact, his own uh, chairman of the National Economic Council, Larry Summers, said as much. And in, in a journal article, he described employer mandates as, quote, disguised tax and expenditure measures, unquote, that increase unemployment work against, can work against the very people they purport to help and that expand the size of government. Now, that's an odd prescription for an economy in the middle of a recession. There's greater unanimity among Democrats when it comes to imposing price controls on health insurance premiums. And the idea has obvious surface appeal. No one really likes the idea of sick people having to face very high health insurance premiums. Yet just as price controls have failed in every other application throughout history, they fail when it comes to health insurance, too. Mark Pauley of the University of Pennsylvania and his colleagues have shown that premium controls offer little or no improvement in terms of covering the sick. And rather, premium controls actually encourage insurers to avoid the sick. And who can blame them? If an insurance company receives a premium keyed to the average medical expenses of everyone in their pool, then enrollees with higher than average medical expenses are nothing but a liability. That's why Humana called the sickest people in its Medicare prescription drug plan to tell them that Sierra Health Services' Sierra RX plan would offer them better coverage. It's because those people were costing Humana money and they wanted those seniors out. Premium controls themselves lead to worse health care for the sick because they reward insurers for skimping on care or otherwise taking steps to get rid of sicker enrollees. But it's actually acting in tandem that mandates and price controls do the most damage. Together, they would execute a pincer movement that would march all Americans into a narrow range of government-run health plans. With its requirement that all Americans purchase, quote, meaningful coverage, Mr. Obama's proposed employer mandate could eliminate the most economical 50% of uh, health insurance options on the market. That means that some 80 million Americans with employer-sponsored insurance would have to uh, purchase a more costly plan. At the same time, premium controls imposed on private health insurance would unleash adverse selection, which will eliminate the most comprehensive insurance plan options. That's what happened in the health insurance exchanges run by the federal government, the University of California, and Harvard University. In fact, the, the effect of adverse selection on uh, health insurance choices at Harvard was documented by none other than uh, Obama advisor David Cutler. So taken together, mandates and, and premium controls would effectively socialize private health insurance. They would march all Americans into that narrow range of government-approved health plans by eliminating both the low-cost and the comprehensive options. And it matters little that we would call these, that we would continue to call these plans private because they would still be managed by nominally private insurance companies. If government compels you to participate 
in health insurance. If government decides what you will put in and what you will get out, then really what is there left to socialize? And for all the disruption that the leading democratic plans would bring, they would neither contain the growth of health care spending nor improve the quality of care. The reason, I would argue, can be found in a few inspirational passages that I'd like to read from you from Mr. Daschle's book on health care reform. Mr. Daschle writes, and I quote, What medical services should the government or private insurers have to cover? White House policymakers and members of Congress aren't qualified to make those decisions. Because health care is so complex, special interest experts have the upper hand in their dealings with legislators. The American people need to know that decisions on coverage and costs are being made for the public good and aren't tainted by politics or special interests. Professional expertise and trustworthiness, these are qualities that Congress lacks when it comes to health care. In Congress, every decision is political. Health care policy shouldn't be subject to the whims of subcommittee chairmen and special interests. It's too complicated and too important for that. After a century of failure, it's time to try another way. If coverage decisions are taken out of the hands of elected officials, advocacy groups with political clout wouldn't be able to exercise it. I suspect that most members of Congress would be glad to be rid of their responsibility for controversial health policy decisions. End quote. I read those words and I say amen. Mr. Daschle gives one of the best explanations I've ever read of why Congress should return to individual Americans the power to choose their own health plan and make their own health care decisions. Unfortunately, that is not what Mr. Daschle has in mind. Instead, Mr. Daschle hopes to break the cycle of government failure with a new federal health board, a Daschle ex machina, if you will, which would make decisions about your health care free from political influence. Mr. Daschle's uh, proposed federal health board would dictate health insurance premiums and provider payments. It would make, quote, specific coverage decisions, end quote, that will determine whether millions of Americans get the drug or surgery that they want. It would create, quote, a single set of standards, end quote, for all government health care programs. And it would, quote, exert enormous, I'm sorry, exert tremendous influence on every other provider and payer, even those in the private sector, end quote. And finally, the Federal Health Board would operate under, quote, a decision-making process that is one step removed from Congress and the White House, end quote. Make no mistake, what Mr. Daschle proposes is a Federal Health Rationing Board. No matter what Mr. Daschle or other advocates of this approach may say, the aim of a Federal Health Board or any federal agency designed to generating and deploying comparative effectiveness research is to ration medical care. The reason that Congress has been unable to make health care better, cheaper, and safer, as Mr. Daschle sees it, is not because Congress has too much power over your health care. It is because the American people's access to their members of Congress, their right to petition government for a redress of grievances, makes it too difficult for Congress to exercise that power. Therefore, the influence of the people must be curtailed. Mr. Daschle does not have a problem with power. Mr. Daschle has a problem with accountability. It's tempting to think that a Daschle ex machina, like a federal health rationing board, can overcome the political obstacles to reform. Yet the danger of those proposals is not so much that they will succeed in rationing care. More likely, they would fail. As Matthew Holt recently wrote at the healthcare blog, quote, the federal health board, if it gets established, will get defanged by lobbyists immediately. End quote. And why? Well, the graveyards in Washington are littered with agencies that have tried to use comparative effectiveness research to reduce government spending on low-value health care services. 
And they're also littered with schemes to contain Medicare and Medicaid spending that have later been undone by Congress. But Mr. Daschle, I would argue, is correct about one thing. After nearly a century of failure, it is time to try another way. Over the past century, health care reform has largely meant asking freedom to yield to government. Rather than asking the American people's freedom to control their health care, to yield to government once again, it is time we asked government to yield to freedom. It is time we gave all Americans, whether under or over age 65, the freedom to control their health care dollars and choose their own health plan. It is time that government eliminated regulations that have blocked the freedom of innovative health plans and providers to secure to introduce secure health coverage and better, cheaper, and safer medical care. Freedom will make health insurance more affordable, as law professors Henry Butler, Larry Ribstein, and David Hyman will argue in a forthcoming Cato study. Freedom will deliver better coordinated care, as Arnold Kling and I argue in a Cato study available today. Freedom will deliver more comparative effectiveness information, as I argue in a forthcoming Cato study, and freedom will enable purchasers to use that information to contain, to contain costs, something that government has proven over and over that is, it is incapable of doing. Freedom will make private health insurance possible for many more patients with high-cost medical conditions. As University of Chicago finance professor John Cochran argued in his classic 1995 Journal of Political Economy article, and will argue again in an upcoming Cato study. And finally, freedom will enhance society's ability to care for the sick and the needy, as I argue in the Cato, policy for, uh, the Cato Handbook for Policymakers to be released next month. Admittedly, the freedom to control health care and the freedom uh, uh, to innovate are unlikely to gain ground in this Congress. And so it, I argue it would, it would be better if this Congress adhered to the principle of don't just do something, stand there. It would be better if Congress blocked new government health programs, mandates, price controls, and the bureaucracy designed to implement them, and we put off health care reform until we have a Congress that looks more favorably on these freedoms than the past few Congresses have. Because if we do not block those measures, if we enact them, then in five or ten years we'll be right back where we are now, lamenting the growing cost of health care, outraged that insurers are avoiding the sick, bemoaning the lack of choice in health insurance, decrying our health care sector's inability to coordinate care, lamenting the lack of comparative effectiveness research and how we don't even use what little research we have, and scratching our heads over why health care lags other sectors of the economy in terms of information technologies and other innovations. We face serious challenges in health care. But the first rule of holes advises that when you're in a hole, stop digging. An intolerable status quo is no excuse for making things worse, and better that we rely, better that we do nothing now than rely on the same tired ideology that brought us to where we are. So with that, I thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions. Yes? Um, I'd like to ask you to comment on two alternatives, one fairly close, and that is I've heard one suggestion is just to extend the federal employees plan to all Americans. And the second further thing to bear with is we've sort of had compulsory auto insurance for a long time, and that sort of worked. Would you like to comment on that? Uh, two, two good questions. The first, uh, opening the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program to all Americans. Federal employees have a lot of advantages over everyone else because they are, are able to choose from a menu of health plans. And there is some appeal to letting other, uh, other Americans into that program. I think it's important to keep in mind, uh, well, before I get to that, essentially what that would do is it would open more Americans, uh, open that health, uh, open to more Americans a health insurance exchange 
that does much of what I've described already, that controls the prices for health insurance, that hasn't been as, uh, as prescriptive when it comes to what plans could be offered, but does control what plans uh, can be offered in that exchange. The problem with that sort of a process is, over time, regulation uh, requires more and more services to be covered, which eliminates the low-cost uh, economical plans. And as I mentioned before, even in FEHBP, we've had – because the nominal prices that uh, federal employees pay are largely uh, capped, are largely controlled, um, there has been this process of adverse selection, which eliminates the more comprehensive options and eliminates uh, – either by um, – eliminates those options either because the insurers drop those options because only sick people sign up for them or it leads insurers to drop uh, options within plans that they keep on, uh, on the market uh, because those benefits are attractive to sick people. So over time, you get the same sort of dynamic that I was describing. But I think it's important to bear in mind that when Barack Obama says that he wants to make health, in- that he wants to make, uh, health insurance available to Americans that's like the health insurance options that members of Congress has, he is not talking about letting members of the public into the federal employees' health benefits program. And the reason is the first people to come into that program are going to be the sickest people with no other options. And those people are going to increase the premiums because everyone has to pay close to an average premium. The premiums are are largely controlled in the FEHBP. Those sicker people coming into the FEHBP will raise premiums for members of Congress, their staff, uh, members of federal agencies, and that's not going to sit well with those very important constituencies. And that's why no one is talking about actually opening up that program to the general public. Uh, your other question was about, uh, was about auto insurance mandates. Um, if we require people to purchase auto insurance, why shouldn't we also require them to buy health insurance? There are a number of reasons, I think. One of them is that a health insurance mandate is uh, a little more oppressive than an auto insurance mandate because if you want to avoid the auto insurance mandate, you can just take the bus. You don't have to buy or drive a car. It's much more difficult to divest yourself of your body in order to avoid the health insurance mandate. Moreover, it's not clear that auto insurance mandates work. In, uh, the, the rates of auto insurance in states that require people to purchase it versus states that don't do, uh, do not vary that much. The share of uninsured motorists appears similar to the share of, uninsured, of, 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 pe- of people without health insurance despite the fact that we don't have a health insurance mandate in most of the United States. And the fact that most states also require uh, drivers to purchase coverage for uninsured motorists, I think is an implicit admission that those mandates, uh, that people, that drivers purchase auto insurance do not work. And broadly speaking, Mandates such as that don't improve the functioning of health insurance markets or health care markets. You can't improve a product by forcing people to buy it. All that those mandates do is pump more money into the system, which is, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of the special interests that make their money uh, off of um, uh, uh, in the health insurance market would like you to – would like to force individuals to buy their services. Yes, Jean. I understand – How would that work and how would that cover 
more people than are being covered now, how would that cover everybody? If you're making 20000 a year and your wife gets breast cancer and insurance companies are free to charge, what, how, is, how does this affect that person I think that a less regulated marketplace would make health insurance more affordable in a number of ways. First, you could avoid the, um, the benefits that you don't want to purchase. Right now, state governments don't let you do that. So if you purchase health insurance in Massachusetts, you have to buy all the different types of coverage that Massachusetts requires you to buy. In Maryland, I think there's 60 different types. In the average state, it's about 38 different types of coverage. First of all, so that removing those, uh, allowing consumers to avoid those types of coverage and avoid the cost of other regulations would make health insurance more affordable. But you, you went straight to what is the, the more difficult question, which is what about someone with breast cancer? Well, if someone does not buy health insurance before they become sick, it's very difficult to get an insurer to write you a policy to cover, uh, some, to cover a loss, to cover something that's already happened. Much like it's difficult to go cause an auto accident and then go to an auto insurance company and say, you know what, I just had an accident. Can I get some uh, retroactive coverage? The way that markets try to and will, will, would cover more people with high cost and, – and I should, I should mention the, the individual health insurance market gets a pretty bad rap. Because it does charge people premiums according to their health risks. But it does also, and this is less well-known, cause uh, or it does cover a lot of people with high-cost conditions. Those are people who purchase health insurance while they're still healthy. Uh, and that insurance stays with them and their premiums do not go up just because they got breast cancer or some other high-cost long-term condition. So the way that markets actually encourage people to do that is buy, to, to buy health insurance while they're uh, still healthy is to charge them higher premiums once they get sick. And the, uh, under, a, under a, as I mentioned earlier, the Cato Institute is going to be releasing a paper by uh, Professor John Cochran in the, in the coming weeks that argues that markets will not only do that, they will not only provide coverage to sick people under those circumstances, but can provide them much more choice uh, and therefore much better health care if we eliminate those restrictions on insurers' ability to uh, price insurance according to risk. Now, that said, there are always going to be some people who either could not afford health insurance um, or, uh, or, or were irresponsible and didn't purchase health insurance before they, the onset of a high-cost condition. When it comes to helping those people, whether you're talking about public charity, private charity, we're, we always face a trade-off that economists call the Samaritan's Dilemma, which is we want because we're a de- decent society, we want to help those people. But it's not straightforward. Uh, it's not a straightforward uh, question, or, or there are no straightforward answers, because if we help all such people, because the offering uh, uh, assistance to, to some people encourages others to take advantage of that assistance, to be irresponsible, to not buy coverage on their own. So my, my answer to, to that question is, I don't know if there is a best answer. I know that, uh, that there is not one best answer, and so that we should, if, if the government is going to be trying to provide assistance to, these, uh, t- to people in those circumstances, we should be trying a diversity of approaches, maybe at the state level rather than at the federal level, to find out what provides people the, the assistance they need without encouraging people to be irresponsible. Um, yes? Uh, three questions in uh, <laughs> First, uh, why do you always, uh, like uh, most politicians and bureaucrats, refer to it as a health care system, but really a medical care system, a sick care system? It's very good if you're hooked up with a good physician in a good hospital. Not always the reality. Second, um, 
progressive movements uh, in the economy, it's uh, now, I guess, the clean energy and sustainable agriculture. It's called CAM, Complementary Alternative Medicine, uh, Complementary Alternative Healthcare, or Integrative Healthcare, is talking about the same things. Uh, the kind of thing Andrew Weil is doing at the University of Arizona, David Eisenberg, Harvard. And, and what, what was question number two? Okay. Integrating um, more healthcare modalities like nutrition. Uh, okay, and, and, and question number three is what? Postural work. Uh, the question for that is have you ever thought of it? Third question is uh, have you ever looked at uh, malpractice reform? Uh, malpractice premiums that every doctor and hospital pays is really a subsidy to the insurance industry. And uh, it's a system really that makes honest people dishonest. Go back to the uh, 1973 Nixon HEW Practice Commission, put out a report about an inch thick that talked all about risk management. Current HHS should do a study on how many of those recommendations have actually been implemented in the last 35 years. And there's an appendix to that report about three inches thick with chapters in the back called Alternatives to Litigation. And there's one sentence in there at the beginning of one of those chapters that uh, always uh, intrigued me, and that is, I quote, there's no rule of law or precedent on public policy that precludes the use of arbitration in the medical legal interface. Now, we have a big help IT uh, initiative. Well, can I, can, I, can, I try to take, can I try to take those, those three questions? Because you, th- you asked three questions that, that, that uh, raise a lot of different issues. So uh, first, is uh, yes, why why refer to it as healthcare rather than a medical system? Um, healthcare has become a term of art. I actually agree. It's it's more a medical care system than it is a healthcare system. I use them interchangeably. Um, I, I but I'm trying to move more toward using medical than than healthcare. Uh, complementary and. and Complementary and all, and 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 it yeah it raises important questions about what is the focus of the system, and I think that the focus of the healthcare or medical system should be whatever patients want it, whatever consumers want it to focus on. The problem is it focuses more on medicine because that's what government subsidizes, um, and and that's where government pushes the money. Um, and I think that's you know probably one of the reasons uh, why. Um, well, I'll just leave that there. Complementary and alternative medicine, uh, I, I don't focus on that very much, so I don't have uh, much of an answer for you there. But medical malpractice, if you have a look at uh, the book Healthy Competition, which I wrote with Mike Tanner, and the Cato Handbook for Policymakers, which will be coming out next month, we make some uh, recommendations about how to reform medical malpractice. The biggest one is that the federal government should not be doing it. Aside from that, well, what we would rather see, or, or the second recommendation, is that states should be enforcing contracts that uh, uh, that allow individuals uh, and doctors, or individuals and maybe health plans as mediators uh, between them and doctors, to write their own medical malpractice reforms into contracts with each other. Uh, the problem right now is that if you want uh, binding arbitration, you could write that into a contract, but a court won't enforce that contract. The court will not enforce – courts generally will not enforce contracts that limit your right to sue a provider for negligence. Now, uh, really what that does is that ends up blocking access to care for a lot of people uh, to whom it's more important to actually get to see a doctor than to be able to sue them down the road. So, so 
So there are, I think there are a lot of ways of reforming medical malpractice. There's no one obvious way, and that's why we need experimentation with those sorts of contracts um, that I think would be preferable either to uh, legislative rules, uh, med mal reforms legislative by Congress or state legislatures. Sir, in the back. I'm sorry, why, why am I not for what? Okay, two questions. Uh, the first was, uh, isn't it true that Mr. Obama and Mr. Daschle actually support single payer? Why don't? Well, actually, I would argue that they do, and Mr. Obama has said that on a number of occasions. He said it in 2003, um, and I can point you to the video on YouTube. He said it in 2008, more recently. And, and that's and that's where he would go. And he has hinted that after his uh, reforms, after his campaign uh, plan were implemented, maybe we could move in the direction of single payer. So I th- and I think that his his suggestion, I mean, the way he sets up his his health plan would ultimately move more and more Americans into a government run program, the, the Medicare like program for people under age 65. And the fact that he wants to eliminate private plans in Medicare uh, also suggests that he wants everyone in a government-run program. So it's not that he, 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 if he were designing an ideal system from scratch that Mr. Obama would put everyone in a government-run plan. He wants to put everyone in a government-run plan even though he isn't designing uh, a health care system from scratch. Um, so uh, that, I, I think, uh, answers Mr. Obama. Uh, Mr. Daschle, I'm not really sure even having read his book where his heart really lies when it comes to a single-payer health care system. He has said it's politically infeasible, and so, and so he's not pushing for one. But now I've, I've forgotten what was the, the second part of your question. Why, why, oh, that's, okay. Why do I not favor the repeal of Medicare? I do. I do. Um, the, what I, actually, if you, if you read the book, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure that we do say repeal Medicare. What we do talk about doing, uh, because again, that would be politically infeasible. What we do talk about doing is giving seniors, instead of having government control the money and government control their decision of health plan and how providers are paid and so forth, give seniors the money that that Medicare would spend on their behalf. Adjust it for their illness so that they would be able to, you know, give sick people more, healthy people a little less, so they'd be able to go out and buy a health insurance plan of their choice. And then for younger workers, let them save their Medicare taxes in a personal account that they own and controls that would fund their health care in retirement. If you do those two things, well, then Medicare, uh, Me- Medicare as, we, we, as we know it no longer exists. And if we live in a world where the, the Medicare system has been displaced by personal accounts, well, then I would be happy to engage in a debate, a debate over whether we should keep those personal accounts around. Um, sir, uh, on the aisle, you had your hand up a number of times. Um, okay, health care insurance and medical care insurance, but also health care and medical care services. And I, I, I would have to agree with you that it seems like the trend towards socialized medicine is a great big mistake. In the case of commodities that are basically private goods and services rather than public goods. But my question to you is that as consumers of health care, medical care services, it's clear that there are a lot of them, the mainstream economists and research uh, includes that there are a lot of market failures in these markets. I mean, they just don't work like competitive markets ought to work and do work in many other commodities, private goods and services. So therefore, my question to you is, 
Do you agree that there are market failures? Uh, agree also in the context that socialism is a disaster, I think. But what would you do? What, what would you do? Well, to the, to the question, are there market failures in healthcare? To, to an economist, to an economist, the term market failure has a specific meaning. It means that for some reason, the economy, uh, even when people are acting in their own self-interest, uh, the, the market is not producing the efficiency-maximizing amount of stuff, whatever stuff you're talking about. So there are reasons why that can happen. There are public goods or externalities, really, they're mo- mostly all externalities where people aren't bearing the full cost of their decisions or reaping the full benefit of, of their decisions. So, uh, and, and asymmetric information could, could be one of them. Um, but all of, these, all of these things are problems whether the government, whether the markets are trying to provide the right amount of stuff or government is trying to provide the right amount of stuff. So... So are there market failures in the strict, uh, the strict economic sense of the term in healthcare? Yes. Does that explain why America's healthcare sector is such a mess? Absolutely not. I've, I've, you, know, you read articles that say the rising cost of healthcare shows that the market has failed. Uh, the fact that we don't have electro- electronic medical records shows the market has failed. The fact that medicine is not as safe as it should be. We have uh, um, uh, an epidemic of medical errors and the situation is not getting better is evidence that the market has failed. It's not evidence that the market has failed. That's evidence that government has failed. Government has re- released, uh, uh, subsidizes health care extensively. It pays for about half of health care, uh, half of the medical care in this country directly and uh, causes everyone else to not care about the cost of, of the rest. It distorts the way we pay providers, which affects how much, how many services they provide, how how aggressively they try to root out medical errors, how uh, aggressively they try to innovate in terms of making healthcare more efficient. Um, so, for each of these areas where people you know see failures in our healthcare sector, it's usually not the market that's failing here; it's the government. And I think that we have uh, available for you. Uh, a publication where I argue that actually the U.S. healthcare sector is every bit as socialized as other advanced nations. The government has every bit as much power over our healthcare sector as the government of Canada or the U.K. or Germany has over their healthcare sectors. Our government just makes different decisions with that power, and so we, so we get, get a different set of perverse outcomes. We have high and rising costs, and Well, but that's but 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 that is but. Well, I, I let me answer your question with your with a question. How would you know? Because the American healthcare sector doesn't give us anything like uh, remotely resembling a control group that would allow us to compare how a free market would work against uh, heavily regulated markets. Uh, government, I you know, permeates, insinuates every corner of our healthcare sector. Absolutely not. Would it be perfect? Absolutely not, because we're talking about human. I think that I think that you would see dramatically more innovation. You would see uh, innovation to reduce costs by eliminating unnecessary services or finding more affordable ways to provide uh, service uh, um, to provide services, and you would find quality innovations that make those services work better. Um, so I think that. I think that uh, government has actually suppressed all of these by subsidizing healthcare, by dictating how we pay providers, by uh, w- with other regulations that that discourage innovation. Yes, sir. Yeah. On the same sort of issue, and that is, do you treat anything? Are there any kind of other impediments to supply? Most of this is 
on insurance, but the, the, the real thing is the delivery of health, uh, medical care. And are there other restrictions like the AMA or lobbying or state regulations that, you know, my, my concern here is that we're focused much on a big expansion in demand, uh, but not much set on the supply side. And that's going to create tremendous rents, or, I mean, or an awfully crowded uh, doctor's office, you know, instead of... And that's happening in Massachusetts right now. happening all right. over. They're churning, uh, well, not churning, that's the wrong word, but there's a much shorter visits because they're mm -hmm. constrained by price, so they're reducing the quality and getting more revenue. One of the... Anyway, the supply issue is the question. Are there other any other policies that can be used to increase supply in a kind of competitive market? I'm not... Well, what's interesting is uh, I don't really know what um, whether we're uh, wh whether we have uh, excess capacity in our health sector, too many doctors, too many hospital beds, or too little. Probably, but but I would guess probably too many because for all the things that government does to uh, to suppress supply, and there are things like uh, all sorts of barriers to entry, like uh, licensing of uh, medical professionals and and certificate of need laws before you can build a hospital, or Medicare restrictions on hospital ownership. There are also the government is also flooding the market with so many subsidies, which also increases the quantity supplied. So I'm not really sure whether we have uh, too much or too little when it comes to doctors and, and, and hospitals, but I think it's probably too much. Um, one has there, I'm sure that studies on since the inception of tri, uh, Medicare in 1960 that the, what the total cost. I, I'm sure it's in, in trillions. That given, if there was a perfect world in the Medicare, there wasn't abuse, corruption, and just inefficiencies, where would have those dollars gone further? Is that if we hadn't been spending so much money on Medicare, what would that money have been spent on? I haven't actually tallied that up. It's an interesting question, uh, but what you know and and. Uh, an interesting bit of research that was done recently by Amy Finkelstein of uh, MIT is that in the first 10 years since Medicare was introduced, uh, it didn't have any effect on or, or any uh, effect that she could find on the health outcomes of seniors. It didn't affect their mortality rates. Seniors weren't living any longer as a result of all of this money that we were spending on Medicare from 1990, I'm sorry, 1966 to 1976 which really calls into question the value that we were getting out of that program. Um, now, what would that money have been spent on? Well, that's anyone's guess. It, it most, most of the money came from younger workers, so probably some of that money would have been used to buy health insurance for younger workers, maybe some of it saved for their future medical expenses. Or, you know, maybe they were going to spend it on housing. It's um, any number of things, I think, is the answer. Are there lessons learned that you or anybody's out of Medicare that Lessons learned from the introduction of Medicare. From Medicare, from Medicare. Well, I think all sorts of all sorts of lessons, uh, including that when you throw more money at healthcare in that sort of an indiscriminate way, uh, or you have the government do that, it it it, it, it will increase spending. It will not uh, have much of an effect uh, of on health outcomes, if any. And uh, it's going to calcify because you're having the government lock in place the way uh, you, they things are done at that moment, you're going to calcify that sector of the economy and suppress a lot of innovations that would make healthcare better and improve health outcomes and make healthcare more affordable. Is Medicare uh, the largest government medical program? 
I think it, uh, it's definitely the largest purchaser of medical services in the U.S. and I think also in the world. Wow. Yes, ma'am. I think it's an excellent question. I think that the amount that we spend on health care per year has risen to maybe $2.5 trillion now. It's about one-sixth of the U.S. economy. And uh, the question is how do we reduce the amount that we spend? First, I'd like to say it's not my goal. I, I don't think the goal of health care reform generally should be to reduce the amount we spend on health care because I don't think there is any one right amount of either – personal income or GDP that people should be spending on health care. That should be the result of the decisions made by individuals about how much health care is valuable to them. And I think really there, therein lies the key or the answer to your question, which is um, the, the way to reduce um, low-value medical spending, medical care that people don't value very much, that isn't improving health outcomes or making patients happier – the way to do that is to give individuals the money that others, other people control, give individual Americans the money that either the government or employers are controlling on their behalf. The government is taking from them through th their tax dollars or that the government is in, uh, allowing employers to control by Im imposing a huge tax penalty on you if you get your health insurance anywhere but from an employer. You know, right now, the, um, I think if you take that $2.5 trillion and you divide it by the number of people in the economy, I did this a while back and it came out to like something like $24,000 per person. Uh, I'm sorry, per family of four. It's about $7,000 uh, uh, per person we spend on medical care in the U.S. So for a family of four, if that's, let's say, $25,000 per year that we're spending on health care on average, well, that's coming out of their incomes in the form of taxes. It's coming out of their wages uh, in, in the form of uh, employer-sponsored health insurance premiums. They control very little of that money. The, the average employer plan, uh, the, the, the premium that the employer pays uh, to the average family plan comes out of that worker's wages, and it's about $9,000. Well, you know, if you had – if you could control that $9,000, not only could you – would a lot of families be able to afford health insurance, but they could actually buy the health insurance that, that suits their needs rather than their employer's needs, and it stays with them from job to job. And they'd probably buy a lot less uh, health insurance, which would uh, encourage them and their doctors to avoid unnecessary expenses. So I think the key, the answer to your question is let the consumers control the money. And the answer is the same whether you're talking about people under age 65 or people over age 65. Let the patient control the money. Let them choose their health plan, and they'll, they'll weed out the bad stuff. They'll, they'll gravitate toward plans and providers to provide economical care and that innovate in ways that improve quality and reduce costs. Yes. Well, shame on you for noticing. Difficult issues with your proposal. Take the case of a young couple 
young, they're healthy, so they opt for a relatively low-cost insurance treatment. Then they have a child who's born with spina bifida. How exactly are we as a civilized and profitable society going to ensure that they can get adequate health care for that child on a long-term basis without being bankrupted? I think the first uh, the, the first part of the answer is we should make sure that health insurance that covers uh, birth defects is is as affordable as possible. That we should remove whatever obstacles to private markets providing that coverage exist, so that it is, it is, and I and I. Actually, when uh, when individuals purchase health insurance on their own, uh, directly from an insurance company, that tends not to happen. It's actually mandated by federal law right now that insurers not increase your premiums just because you got sick. But before the federal government required that, the majority, 75, 80 percent of the plans on the market... No, no, no. That's, that's, you, you interrupted me. Uh, uh, 75 to 80 percent of the health insurance policies on the market provided that feature before it was mandated by government. So even without government action, those products were available if, if people were willing to purchase them. So, so the first thing that I would want to do is make sure that those, those types of health insurance uh, policies are of, of available and as affordable as possible. Uh, now, what about – and there are, two, there are really two cases, only two ways – that, that that can go that things can go wrong. One is that if the family cannot afford um, to purchase those policies, and two, if they could afford to purchase them but they didn't, they were irresponsible. They didn't buy coverage for uh, uh, um, for anyone but the two of them, and therefore they had a child. The child has a serious condition, and uh, they don't have any way to pay for uh, the care that that child needs. The the, the first the first situation. Um, which you, I think what we want to make too sure we don't do is get is is have the sort of healthcare system that we have right now, which eats into people's earnings and makes it harder and harder for them to afford those types of policies. Uh, but there will still be some, always be some people who can't afford uh, that type of insurance, and I think we need as a decent society to provide uh, medical care to to that child in cases where the family could not afford to provide it. Again, I don't have a silver, silver bullet answer for that. I do know that mandating – that, that uh, coming up with one way uh, that everyone uh, that in all corners of American society is going to try to uh, ameliorate that need is going to end up causing more problems than it creates. What we need to do is we need a multiplicity of approaches so that people aren't taking advantage of that need and we're not encouraging more responsibility. We need to find different ways of balancing the assistance that we're providing against the, the harm that's caused by encouraging people to take advantage of that assistance. And number two, um, you know, the family that was irresponsible, I guess I really answered that, that situation as well. So uh, I'm not arguing against providing assistance. What I'm arguing for is making sure that, uh, that, that private markets can meet as much of the need as possible because we will be – not only will that minimize – the number of people who do need assistance, but will be a richer, more prosperous society and better able to, to meet those needs that remain. But once again, you're saying it's a problem and I have no silver I don't have a pearl answer. You said no, well, uh, there are no silver bullets. No, I think there is. And I grew up in Britain. And it all is false. Well, but, that, but there you go. There you go. Well, 
but now I could dismiss now now if there if there let's say that um, no no I, I I will stipulate that even in a complete in a libertopia a completely free market where where people can innovate and and we get and we get lots of innovations and the cost of healthcare let's say is is falling and uh, there will still be people who do not get medical care that would have benefited them now can I just wave them off as oh well there will be faults like you are waving off the problems with the NHS. I think that means – I think there will be faults means that that's not a silver bullet either. Yes. Oh, oh let, me, let me ask you a question about sort of like my, my libertopia uh, because uh, for, for healthcare, which, which would still, I think, require some government intervention because I actually have an HSA uh, and find that it's incredibly difficult to find out what those medical procedures are going to cost before you get the bill. Absolutely. I have an HSA and I have the same problem. Which leads me to wish that the government would simply require well, uh, doctors to provide this information and not, not, not quite done. Uh, and I really wish that I could get some financial benefit from acting on the price information. I remember that when I was in graduate school, I had managed to work out that for some reason... Cataract surgery was always done with two ophthalmologists in the New York metropolitan area. The ophthalmologists in North Carolina were confident enough to do it with one and, and charge half, uh, which would make it really worthwhile to fly down to North Carolina. You could throw in a week of rehab, you know, on Hilton and there would be a positive net present value, you know, except it would probably violate the anti-kickback laws. But you want to recalibrate the insurance so that, one, people had price information, and second of all, got some benefit from acting on it. Uh, well, and, and I think that health savings accounts uh, are making both of those things happen right now because uh, health savings accounts uh, level the playing field in terms of the tax treatment of money that uh, you, you use to purchase uh, medical care through a third-party insurer or – uh, on your own, out of pocket, directly. Uh, so, so by encouraging that sort of cost consciousness, by giving individuals control over that money that you know maybe their employer would have controlled otherwise, we we've got that cost consciousness. So people actually care about what their providers charging. It doesn't mean the providers are giving them the information yet, but they care until health insurance kicks in. Um, and. An- one of the more encouraging developments uh, that's surrounded or that's come along with health savings accounts and other forms of consumer directed care like health reimbursement arrangements and, and FSAs is that the providers are actually furnishing that information. And it's not just the doctors. It's also the insurance companies are uh, – I think it was uh, Aetna uh, that, that let its members see the, no, the rates that they had negotiated with doctors in those members' areas so that they could comparison shop. They could – take price into account when they're deciding, do I want to go that far to see that doc? This doc does, doesn't have the experience that I would like to see. They can take price into account. That's an example of the market furnishing people the, the sort of information that you're talking about. I think that's only going to happen insofar as consumers control their health care dollars. Health savings accounts are a very small step in that direction. I think uh, the, the highest estimate I've seen is that 6% or something like that of privately insured people have a health savings account or, or a high deductible health plan. So, so I don't think it's until people control 
all of the money that we'll get to see that sort of price transparency that you're looking for. Another indication that you don't control your health care dollars. Exactly. Right. Right. Richard. This will have to be the last question, actually. Uh, two fairly simple ones. I hope. One, um, does, are the proposals that are kind of floating around these days, Well, actually, uh, with with regard to, uh, they're they're doing a little bit of all of the above. If you're talking about a uh, a a one size fits all Medicare like plan for people under age sixty five, well, then that that's the floor and the ceiling right there. Um, if if that's where they want to want it all to end up, well, then one plan is one plan. Um, if you're talking about one of these health insurance exchanges where they're going to be setting a minimum benefits package and the providers are going to be lobbying saying, make sure my services are included in that package, and they're going to be imposing uh, premium controls on everyone in that exchange so that health, health plans have to charge healthy and sick the same premiums, well, that's going to eliminate the comprehensive plans. So the floor is going to get higher and the ceiling is going to get lower, and, and, and we're going to end up with uh, with – either one size fits all or a very narrow range of health insurance choices. So the second question is, I, I haven't been able to, to confirm this, but I heard kind of in passing that, that uh, after Senator Kennedy's episode the other day, that he visited the NIH. And I wondered if that was above the floor or below the ceiling, like all the rest of us would be I have no idea. <laughs> no comment. Last question? Okay. Thank you very much.